Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Anthony Painter. I'm Chief Research and Impact Officer at the RSA, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to today's special RSA online event. Um, I'm really pleased to have the chance to talk today to Ed Miliband uh, about his book, uh, Go Big, How to Fix Our World, and in particular, on the eve of COP26, about what it would take to make the huge steps forward we need on climate emergency. Um, Ed, of course, doesn't need any introduction, but we'll do it anyway. Uh, he's the MP for Doncaster North and Shadow Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. He's a leader of the Labour Party from 2010 to 2015 and was formerly the UK's first Secretary of State for Climate Change and was in poster on the 2009 Copenhagen Climate Change Conference. Um, Ed's also co-host of the hugely popular podcast, Reasons to be Cheerful, um, which explores the ideas, people and movements solving the biggest challenges of our age. And of course, the podcast inspired the book. Um, if those of you watching along would like to join the conversation about the event on Twitter, you're more than welcome to do so using the hashtag uh, RSA Go Big um, or to contribute in our YouTube uh, chat. Ed, thank you very much for joining us. It is great to have you. Well, Anthony, it's great to be uh, with you. And as you know, I'm an admirer of your work in particular at the RSA. So it's a particular pleasure to be in conversation with you. Oh, thank you. Well, that's a great start to our conversation. So let's, let's, let's start from there and build. Um, so where, where I wanted to start, obviously, um, is where people are with climate change, actually. And what was interesting, actually, the RSA, we did a poll um, a month or so ago looking at attitudes towards climate change and you know, our, our, our duty to the future and to others. Um, and to be honest with you, I was kind of astounded by the results. I, I don't think I've ever seen a poll result like it across the board, like from Labour to Tory, old to young, wherever people were living, there was incredibly broad support to take decisive action, actually. And that included to help developing countries, to think about the future, to make amends for our, for our past, to change our lifestyles. Lots of conversation about whether we should eat less red meat or drive less and so on. People seem to be fairly firmly um, behind that. And, and I couldn't think of any you know, greater moment to go, go, go big in, in, in the context of the book. You know, are we sort of loving ourselves into a false sense of security about the possibility of change here? Or, or do you think that people really are ahead of where many leaders are, in fact? Well, I think there's a really interesting truth in what you're saying. Um, look, uh, the way I uh, see it is that people know we've got a massive challenge and a massive problem in the climate emergency. They have a sense that governments are not governments all around the world are not doing enough, and they want to be part of it. I think, though, they are also, and I don't know whether this came through in your poll, they're also asking the legitimate question, which is is this transition going to be fair? Um, how, how is it going to affect me? And I, I think, I sort of think increasingly this question of how do we get the transition we need at the speed we need, and maybe we'll get into this, speed and the, the fact that we're in the decisive decade is absolutely very material, particularly for COP, but also for our domestic ambition. Um, and and, and I'm, are you going to leave me on my own to install a heat pump or if you're the steel industry to make the transition, or if you're a new industry to get going and be successful, or are we going to share the burdens? Are we going to share the burdens? Uh, and, and I think if we do, if we do that, 
um, and this is where I think public investment is the absolutely is absolutely crucial in this. Um, if we do that, I think we can definitely take people with us, and not just take we can take people with us. I think people are up for this. People want this to happen. I don't I don't think this needs to be the kind of polarizing issue that you know say it is in the United or as it has been for some time now in the United States. I think that people want to be part of this. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting because I think there was there was there were two qualifications to the to the positivity of the poll, if you like, and one of them is exactly what you're describing. When we asked people around um, questions to do with the cost of living and how that might impact their desire to see decisive action in response to the climate emergency, actually the responses are a bit more balanced. So I think there is a signal there. And, and clearly, what I took from that is actually that this, this transition people think is necessary, but they are insistent. It's not just purely self-interest, that they want to see a fair transition. They want to understand what that looks like. And that might be your reading as well. I, I think you're completely right about that. And that, that, that is my uh, reading. And, and look, look, you know, in a way, it's not surprising. And, and I think people are, you know, people are saying I'm facing a cost of living we're facing a cost of living crisis we don't have lots of money to to spare at all quite the opposite you know is this going to work for me and, and and I think there is a real responsibility this is why labor has made this this um and I know we're talking about my 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 book here but I have sort of another hat on uh um uh, you know this is why we made this pledge at conference the labor Party conference of 28 billion extra each and every year up to 2030. Because I think it goes to this question of, are we going to spread the costs across society and the generations? And, and you know, we're explicit about the fact that it's right to borrow, to invest and, 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 and make these changes uh, and, and support this transition. Or are we not? Just give you a very concrete example, Anthony. The government in their documents uh, recently published, the net zero strategy, say it will cost 100 billion to transform uh, the household sector, that sort of heating, retrofit, etc., over the course of just this decade. Now, we're not saying this has all got to come from government, but when the government comes along and says, and we're gonna offer 3 billion or something like that over a three year period, you think, hang on, where does that mean the costs are gonna fall? It means the costs are essentially gonna fall on, uh, well, the individual is my guess. Of course, private investment has an important role as well. So I think that you know, people are asking a very, very legitimate question, which is, you know, okay, I'm, you know, I'm happy to, or I, you know, I'll, I'll entertain the idea of a heat pump, but if it's going to cost me double or three times what a boiler would cost me, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not so enthusiastic for reasons that are totally understandable. And I think there's a sort of there's a sharing of the costs question, which goes to the urgency question. And then, you know, just while we're on this household thing, you know, if you're going to get a heat pump, you know, you need a, a home that's properly insulated, retrofitted and so on. And that is, I mean, I sort of think of all the things in the climate space that we could be doing, that retrofit insulation plan is, is the biggest no-brainer there is. Yeah, well, we'll come back to the government's net zero um, uh, strategy in a moment. And, and I, I, 
I thought exactly the same when I when I saw that that you know subsidised heat pump um, idea or air source heat pump idea. We've kind of been here before with with with, with incentives, if you like, but it's kind of astonishing that there isn't actually a ready-made market for people to come to do that sort of holistic assessment of what you might need to consider what you as a household uh, might need. And actually, there there seems to be an absence of sort of systems thinking, if you're right, that isn't sort of solved just by giving grants, if you like. Something more comprehensive is going to be, and it's not just about money. It's about it's about practicality and it's about information and understanding and guidance and support. And a lot of that just seems just not be in place quite astonishingly, given that we've been talking about this now for, for decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, look, I think that is right. And, you know, emissions from buildings, I could sort of nerd on about this, as you yeah. guess, for some, for some hours. But, yeah. you know, emissions from buildings are higher now than in 2015. I think we have some of the worst insulated homes in Europe. Um, you know, it's just... It, we know what needs to be done in this space, which is we need a house by house, street by street. We've got 19 million homes below EPC band C in this country. That is a recipe for fuel poverty. That is a recipe for, well, for not being able to make this transition. And, and so, you know, it's not all about money. It's not all about public investment, but I do think there's a sort of, it goes to this urgency um, and speed question. And if I have a, if I have a worry, it's, you know, we're good at setting targets as a country, um, but have we got the plans in place to meet them? And I'm, I'm pretty doubtful at the moment. Yeah, I think that's right. And that, that house by house, street by street thing is is really, but I think actually the, the IPPR's Climate Justice Commission made some suggestions around that. And we, that the, the RSA, have um, you know, supported requiring local authorities to start doing some of that thinking and, and planning so households know exactly what it's going to take. Definitely. Um, and, and then the investment can start to flow, actually. And it's, it's, it's about public resources, you say, but it's about public leadership and, and clarity. I'm thinking about people and behaviours and their needs, it, se it, it seems to me, not just around, around targets, policies and incentives. I think that's right. I mean, I think there is something that very much speaks to the RSA agenda here, which I think I should bring in, which is, and, and, and it speaks to your point about polling. So one of the things I talk about in the book is deliberative democracy and citizens assemblies. And of course we've done a citizens assembly, the select committees of the House of Commons did a citizens assembly on, on uh, climate. I say in the book, we should have a permanent standing um, citizens assembly uh, on climate. And, you know, why do I say that, Anthony? Because because I think you know, we face a massive task, which is to bring people with us, but not bring people with us is the wrong way of putting it. It's, 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 it's engaging with people. And I think people want to engage on these questions. And I, and, and I think you know, and this, is, this speaks to a lot of the work that you've done, not just in this space, but elsewhere. People are often bolder than politicians think they're going to be. Yeah. Um, and, but, 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 but crucially, are we going to let people into this conversation? And I sort of think the way I think about this architecture is we have the Climate Change Committee, which is, if you like, you know, the group of people doing the modelling, the delivery, the assessments, the carbon budgets and all that. But it's like a, pa a parallel structure would be also having a systems assembly, you know, alongside the Climate Change Committee. And both of them would not be binding on government because the Climate Change Committee is not binding. You know, in the end, we're a representative democracy. But it's a pretty strong kind of forcing mechanism on 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 government. And look, if I was the uh, business secretary, uh, I would want that in place because I'd want to be able to have this permanent way of engaging people on these quite, some of them quite tricky questions uh, about the transition. I think if we did that, 
And, and you know, there are local authorities doing this brilliantly all around the country doing this, this process of public engagement. I think it speaks to what kind of society we want. It speaks to the way we want to go about this transition. Yeah, I think that's, that's well, I missed there were two flies in the ointment of our, of our survey. One was the economic security and cost of living question. And, and by the way, we've, we've talked in the past around sort of basic income and guaranteed incomes and so on. And that sort of thing or might have a, a, a part to play. And there's been conversations around carbon dividends, if you like, that you that you tax carbon and you redistribute that in order to support um, support households to shield them from any adverse impacts. But the other one actually was exactly what you're describing. It was on voice. And people felt that their voice wasn't being played into the discussion. They had a question over whether um, uh, leaders and technology was going to be enough. And they felt that their voice needed to be heard in the discussion. So the sort of mechanism you're describing as sort of permanent citizen assembly would be, you know, make a contribution to a wider range of voices being heard in this discussion. But of course, there might be many assemblies in, in neighbourhoods and well, towns and cities across the country. Well, you know, I yeah, it's funny you should say that because I also talk about this in the book. You know, um, James Fishkin, who is the sort of godfather in some ways of deliberative uh, democracy, he says that he he says they should have a he wants in the United States to have a sort of deliberation day on I think every four years, yeah. well in advance of a presidential election. I mean, maybe it's it's a hard thing to to mount, but I think you could imagine doing that on rela in relation to climate. So yes. you know you have you have all you have lots of these assemblies around the country with people engaging on these questions, and I just I just know from the from the and it speaks to your poll. I just know from the uh, from from going around the country and talking to people, you know, there was just there's just sort of real. I, I was in Harrogate last night. Actually, it so happens, and you know, people coming up to me afterwards talking about what they were doing on climate, their monthly climate action. You know, I think there was just a people want to be involved and engaged in this people get the stakes people really get the stakes and yeah. and i think we've got a sort of duty to engage them in this uh, absolutely it's about the, the quality of of democracy leading to different outcomes which is probably why people why some people fear it actually because it does it does shift you know the public mentality a bit by by having these these, these mechanisms certainly our experience of that is that people actually do become a bit more solidaristic when they enter into these environments especially when they get, engage on the information and with each other and that does open new possibilities actually you need that collective spirit if we're going to get totally. through this transition totally to I, think, I think that is I think that is totally right. I think that is totally right. And the deliberation thing, look, in a way, the part of the dilemma of the deliberation thing is how do you make it mass? I'm sure you've thought about this. You know, yeah. how do you make it sort of mass scale enough? So it's not just, you know, it's like, it's great if it's a couple of hundred people or whatever, but how do you, how do you sort of replicate it, scale it up? So enough people feel engaged, but there's different ways of doing it. It doesn't always need to be a deliberative assembly. There must, there are other ways of bringing people in. And I think it's, I think it's definitely a prerequisite. Um, so let's make, this a, let's make this a noisy transition. I think that, that, that probably is, the, is a lesson for this, but yeah, yeah, good quality yeah. yeah. And, 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 and your people's voice have, have, you know, people have a right to be heard on this. I think there's one other thing, Anthony, before we get further, which I sort of want to say, which is, a really important part of what I talk about in the book and, and, and I feel on this, which is, you know, in, in saying we've got to tackle the emergency, we're not just the disaster avoidance people, we're the better world people. Yes. And, 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 and you know, I think, I, find, I, find, I think this is a really important sort of point, which is, you know, we're going to go from the high carbon unjust world. Are we really going to move to the zero carbon unjust world? Well, I hope not. 
And that means, you know, surely as we change the way we heat our homes, we can eliminate fuel poverty. Surely as we change the way we travel around, we can have a decent public transport system. You know, surely as we, you know, plant trees and, and uh, you know, build more green space, have more green spaces, we can, you know, improve access to nature for people right across our country. So I think the other thing, and I, I, I don't know whether it comes through in your polling, it has come through in some of the other polling I've seen, you know, I think there's a prize here, which is not just avoiding catastrophe, but building, a, building, building something better. Yeah, massively. And, and, and that's why we talk about this business challenge as being one of regeneration, because it's not just around net zero. Of course, that's essential. And we've got to get there and we've got to get there quickly. But it's about restoring and replenishing, if you like. It's about it's about putting back in what we take out and safeguarding yeah. the future, protecting our own health, well-being, security as a result, but safeguarding uh, nature and natural resources um, in the process. It's not just about carbon. It's also about waste. It's about energy use as well. You know, that we can't just go on exponentially increasing our energy use, assuming that sort of nuclear fusion is not just around the corner, which we which we know it's not. Now, there is a broader and deeper challenge here, and it is about the way we live. And, I, and you do have to combine justice and replenishment and regeneration if you're going to not just get to net zero, but, but beyond, because there are other problems that are, that are stacking up too. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I completely, I, I, I think that's very well put. And, and, and I think, you know, in a way, there's all kinds of lessons you learn as you go along this process. I think, I think the two, two lessons which are implicit or explicit in what you just said is, is one, we need to talk about the prize and the better world. And secondly, we can't leave out the nature crisis and the biodiversity crisis. And I actually think that's the way a lot of people are going to relate to this yeah. because it is about your local environment. You know, what is the quality of your local environment? Do you have green spaces? You know, I was just actually having a meeting in my constituency this week in Doncaster uh, about, because I did a, I chaired a climate commission in Doncaster on behalf of the mayor and about the sort of plans for tree planting, rewilding, all of those things that we're putting in place. And, and as I was talking to colleagues about it, you know, we were saying this is this is this is this is the way you engage with this is this is like the start at the end the, the entry point for some people for a lot of people for this for this conversation. I think. Yeah, interesting. I, as you know, Ed, I get all the glamorous gigs. And, and this week I, I, I did a talk at a waste management uh, conference. And actually, I was I was not back on my people heels. were fighting at the RSA RSA towers. People were fighting over that. That, yeah. that gig, I'm sure, Anthony. I, I won, I, and I, I won that battle. And but I'm glad I did because actually I was not packing my heels a bit because what I found in that conference that people were no weren't talking about waste systems and management, which was my fear. They were thinking about what if we rethink the waste that we produce, minimise the waste we produce, but we rethink of it as as a set of resources to create sort of you know biogas and fertilise or whatever. Can we rethink the way that waste systems are integrated into our towns and cities to provide? And I was, I was actually came away quite encouraged, not expecting to be actually. And it shows in terms of, you know, thinking about a better future in all sorts of areas, people are reframing some of the questions and that might open out new possibilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is right. And, and, um, and you know, that, that is the other thing about this, which is in a way we've been talking about government and we've been talking about individuals. Actually, what really strikes me about this, um, agenda and obviously I was as you said in the introduction I was 
sort of dealing with it in government uh, in 20, 2008, 2010, is I think business was on side and enthusiastic then, but it's yeah. transformational the extent to which this is now hardwired into what so many businesses do. Not every business. Um, yeah. and, and government has a really important sort of regulatory role in terms of actually setting proper standards and so on. But there is real enthusiasm and there is real sort of uh, commitment to this agenda, I think. And, yeah. and as you say, sort of thinking kind of uh, creatively about out what does it act, not just let's just put something good in our annual report but what does it mean about our business what does it mean and i think that's because you know employees customers are saying it and, and also because people believe it people think well i want to you know i can't just i can't just sort of you know do my business and 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 think well this thing doesn't matter um and i think i think there is you know and that isn't meant to sugarcoat this but i think there is a danger that we just still have a bunch of wishful or magical thinking about everything's going to be fine and everybody wants to do the right thing but I think there are lots and lots and lots of businesses who really do want to do the right thing. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised actually a lot, lot of the things that we, a lot of the language that we use, a lot of thinking that we have. I find it echoes in places like Walmart and Ikea and so on. They say that lightly, you know, it's, and, and it's not just, you know, CSR and greenwashing and so on. There's, there's something more profound that's going on, whether it takes us, you know, far enough along the road, quick enough. No, not yet, I think is the answer, but, well, that's, but, but, it's, but it's certainly starting. So here is the question. I think this is the presenting question, which is, we are going to get to net zero as a world. We, we are. Yeah. Um, we're not in a sort of Copenhagen summit, which was a uh, you know summit summit of two thousand and nine, where it all went wrong. And we, we're not going to end up after Glasgow, I don't, the, the important COP twenty six Glasgow summit in that position. But on climate, this is a, not my phrase, but Bill McKibben, the climate activist, you know, he says winning slowly is the same as losing. Yeah. Now. Winning slowly isn't quite the same as losing, but winning slowly is not really winning because, you know, if we end up with a two degree world, and I actually heard Alok Sharma, the COP president, talking powerfully about this um, the other night, it means hundreds of millions of more people exposed to, exposed to extreme heat. It means we lose all our coral reefs, you know. So we are in a, it's a cliche, but we are in a race against time. So the question is not, do we get it? I think people do get it. I think the question is, do we get it quickly enough? Yeah. And de deceleration is a is a greater threat to us now than denialism. It seems it seems to be, and actually, those who are secretly against it are pursuing a decelerationist um, strategy. Now, I want to come on to the the, the government's um, uh, strategy, which was you know I think it's three hundred and sixty eight pages or so um, published. I thought it was eighteen hundred um, actually. I think I think all of the, the documents together is eighteen hundred. Anyway, I only read, so read the three hundred sixty eight pages. It's the quantity. It's just quantity doesn't necessarily equal quality, but anyway. Well, no, I was going to try and get you to be nice about some aspects of the strategy, because my first question was going to be, you know, what, what would you give a thumbs up to? Um, in I mean, it, it was it's a substantive document. There's real money, real policy. There is some serious thinking in there. You know, it, it's 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 not flighty. It's 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 proper. But what, what would you give the biggest thumbs up to in this? In the I strategy? think the fact that they are trying to do a plan and a pathway is important. Um, so overall, the thing that I think is 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 uh, good is that they're trying to set out a plan. I set out in 2009 when I was the Energy Secretary uh, a low carbon transition plan, and I've been sort of thinking they've really got to do it. So so I think that's important. I think yeah. secondly, there are some specific proposals which are sensible. So a zero emissions mandate, for example, for the automotive sector to ramp up electric car um, yeah. production. 
I think the big hole in this um, plan, and a very, very serious one, is is there the kind of public investment that is going to supercharge this transition, you know, and give us the urgency we need, deliver the fairness we need, and and engage and, and build the prosperity we need. I, I give the example of retrofit, but let me give you another example. The steel industry, really yeah. important foundational industry for the country. Best estimates, it will cost £6 billion for the steel industry to get to net zero. Um, we, the, the Climate Change Committee has set our target that they've got to get there by 2035. You know, it's, a, it's a significant chunk of industrial emissions. Um, the private sector isn't going to fund a £6 billion plan. It's got to be public and private working together. And the government's sort of maybe saying maybe £250 million. We set out a much bolder plan, which is say, look, when you look at the 20 hydrogen projects, which is the, the sort of way of doing this in a clean way around the, um, around the, around the world, uh, they're 50-50, sort of private and public together. And that's the kind of bold thinking you need. And it's what Joe Biden is seeking to do in the US. And I know he's having some issues, um, but which is to, to recognize public investment. And, and, and just really important point on this, Anthony, which is the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, produced a really important report in July, which said that, which, which essentially made the case for public investment and said, delay by a decade doubles the cost of the transition. Yeah because we lock in high carbon choices. And people, your viewers might think, what does that actually mean in practice? Just let me give you an example. In 2016, the Labour government was due to plan for a place under the Labour government, uh, zero carbon homes. We've built nearly a million homes since then, since the government scrapped that target. We're going to have to retrofit those homes. Someone's going to have to pay for it. Yeah. And, and so the role of public investment as the sort of active ingredient to make this transition happen in a way that is fair, is good for prosperity and delivers, I think is the big gap that's missing. And it's not a secret really, because there's you, know, you the treasury document is much, much more lukewarm about some of the investment issues. We know that there's been big rows in government. So the Rubicon, I feel they've not crossed. And I think what's holding them back is that question of, you know, the role of government in making this transition happen and making it fair. And then the other, just sorry, it's a long answer. The other thing I'd say is this, which is that then takes you to the question of, are you gonna put a green coat of paint on an unfair, unequal economy? Or are you gonna fundamentally transform the kind of economy and the kind of society we have in a in a much, much more kind of progressive, fair way? And that that's, that's I think, the prize. So it's interesting, I mean, if I put myself into the mind of Kwasi Kwarteng or Rishi Sunak or even Boris, sure. Boris Johnson, I mean, what, what they would what they would come back and say is, okay, well, that's that, that's all fine, put, putting the progressive thing to the side. But actually, in terms of how we get this done, there is a wall of private sector money that's waiting to invest in this. It's a profitable area. What we as a government have to do is we have to sort of crowd in as much of that private investment we can. And we do that by using things like the UK Infrastructure Bank. We do that by using uh, re regulation um, and, and, and mandates and so on and so forth. And actually that's a smarter way of doing it because it's not all loaded onto, onto the public first, the public debt, and the money is there ready and waiting to, to invest. I mean, you're not convinced. No, I mean, that's great. I mean, look, if the private money will come in, that's great. But all of the estimates I've seen show that even with the most heroic assumptions about private investment, we're going to be way short. And look, take this retrofit question and this heat pumps question. I mean, maybe the market will deliver on the basis of 30,000 heat pumps a year uh, funded by government or not even funded, part funded by government. But I mean, 
that's not what's happening in other countries. Um, this, you know, you, you've got to have a heroic assumption that suddenly the cost of heat pumps comes down from eleven and a half thousand to sort of two thousand for people not to be out of pocket. Or you're saying, look, you face it on your own as a lower and middle income family. And and it goes back to our early conversation. How do we make this transition work? And and here's the thing about this borrowing question, which is different than the normal argument you make, people would make. And I'm not saying I accept this argument, but what's the big argument people make against borrowing to invest? They say, well, we're loading debts onto future generations. The biggest debt we can load onto future generations is not tackling this crisis. That is what the OBR says. That is, that is the biggest penalty we can put onto future generations. And, you know, it is doing right by future generations to make this investment now. But, but look, that's the argument we're going to have. I, I don't believe that the government will deliver, and I don't believe the government will deliver on a, in a fair way on the basis of their plan, but let's see. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, when I was reading the documents, I, 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 I think there was, look, it's very cliche to say, but there, there are things to learn from COVID. But when, when, we, when we were most effective in responding to the pandemic, there seems to be there was three things in place. It was the early part of this year. The rules were clear. Behaviours were aligned to that. And the technology was coming forward, i.e. the vaccinations. And those three things were locked, locked together. And actually what, what happened in July, the rules suddenly removed, the behaviours then started to wane, and, and then the use of the technology waned as well. So people start get stopped getting the vaccination because it wasn't as it didn't seem as seem as serious. The same applies, it seems to me, to the, the, the climate emergency. You've got to have the rules, you've got to have the behaviour, you've got to have the tech. Now, these documents, it seems to me, really missed the behaviour points. And almost like line one of the report was almost pretty much go with the grain of consumer behaviour. It's assuming a sort of 40, 60 to 60 percent increase in energy consumption by 2037. Why are we these things? Why do we have to go with the grain of consumer behaviour? Why can't we think about how we influence and shape and shift consumer behaviour? You know, energy efficiency, for example, is barely part of the conversation, but has to completely. be part of the response. Completely. You're completely right about this. And look, here's an important point about this, which is, I think systems change makes possible individual change. Yeah. If you put the right, if you put the right incentives around for, for people. I mean, it goes back to this fundamental bit of this conversation. If you put the right incentives in place, people will want to do it. You know, so I've said on electric cars, for example, and I think the Scottish government is doing this, long-term zero interest loans, because why for people? Why? Because actually the running cost of an electric car is less than the, 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 the running cost of a petrol diesel car, but the upfront cost is higher. How are we gonna make it affordable for people? People would like to go electric, but it can't just be for the richest. And I think I do want to sort of underline this point. There is a danger. We know this danger, Anthony, that, that this is a kind of life becomes a lifestyle choice for those who can afford it. Right. And, and, and it can't be that. It's got to it's got to speak to people who don't have spare money, who are who are really struggling and say, Look, this can be better for you. And, and this is this thing about the retrofit because you know, cut bills, it would cut carbon emissions, it would reduce our reliance on international, um, on the international uh, uh, gas market. So, so I think there's sort of, I think there's quite a lot. But, but by the way, I'll just say one other thing. It's good, uh, you know, the 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 person who 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 says, well, you know, I'd rather the government would climate deny. I don't say that, you know. I think it's good there's a contest of ideas on climate. You know, I think it's good that I said in the House of Commons to the minister who was doing the statement, 
I think it's good that it's a shared objective on both sides of the House of Commons that we've got to tackle the climate emergency. Let's have the contest about how we do it, what kind of society we build at the end of it, because that's got to be a good thing. Yeah. And I think there's an opportunity to really challenge around, you know, behaviour shift, because I you know, go back to our, 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 our survey and our conversation around democracy. I think people are ready to be engaged. They're open to different ways of doing things. They just want to know that it's going to make a difference, that they're going to be protected um, in, in the transition and that it's and that it's possible. So I think that the strategy for all of its good, and I think it was a lot, lot, lot of good in it. It was that, that there's a missing dimension to it, which I think could be could ultimately end up being a fatal flaw going back into that point around deceleration. No, I, I I agree with you, and and you know that has been the record so far, which is good words, you know, good intentions, but sort of undermined by delivery, and and I think missing out this fairness piece and the behaviour change piece, as you say, um, and how we how we you know how we speak to where people are in their lives, you know, look, just this point about the heat pumps, five thousand pound grant. But if a heat pump's 11,500, well, that's going to be out of the reach of most people. Yeah. 6,500 quid. Yeah. You know, well, it's a lot more than that. Once, you know, if you live in an old house, you have to get it insulated. Quite, and, and quite, you know, it's just not, it's not even imaginable. I mean, so, you know, I think that's, so, so I think you're bang on. Yeah. Okay, well, we've got a couple of minutes left. I, I want to sort of shift tack a bit, just, just finally, and, and just ask a bit about the sort of the, the politics um, of, of all of this. And have a look at, you know, social democracy, you know, your part, the sort of family of, of, of European social democrats and kind of where um, it's heading. Obviously, we just had the German elections and the, the SPD, social democrats in Germany, performed um, somewhat better than might have been expected a year or so ago. Um, but social democracy is being eaten from both sides, nonetheless, um, in, in many respects, obviously from that sort of populism and nationalism on the right and green politics um, on, on, on the left. How do you see the sorts of things that we've been talking about today sort of coalesce, coalescing around the sort of progressive political strategy? Well, look, in a way, these, this is, these are really difficult, um, these are really difficult questions. And uh, I'm tempted to say that if I knew the answers, I would be prime minister. And obviously I'd be talking to you and doing an interview with you. Uh, but you know, uh, these, as I found, these are very difficult questions. So the argument of the book is when you look at the um, challenging, challenges facing us, I think it's really important to start from the condition of the country. You know, we've been through the financial crisis, Brexit, uh, COVID and what that has exposed about the inequalities we have as a country, and the climate crisis here now and, you know, sort of going to get worse. Um, I don't think you can look at those um, challenges and say, well, the answer is, 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 is small change. I think it does need a big response. And if, you know, if I have a self-criticism of myself when I was leader, it's maybe not what other people say, what some other people say, it's, it's that I was big in my analysis. I had some of that analysis, but I wasn't big enough in the solutions. That's in a way the argument of the book. And, and, and to say, look, there are lots of big solutions out there. We've talked extensively uh, about climate and what Labour is advocating on climate, which I think is going big and, 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 and offering a big solution on these, on these questions. That's the first thing. Um, and, and then the, 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 the second thing is, is my observation about our conservative opponents, and this particularly applies to the US um, and UK, uh, which is sort of Trump and Johnson. You know, 
uh, Trump as was in terms of the obviously 2016, 2020. Um, Cameron's argument against me was basically Ed's just wrong in his analysis of society that, you know, we're unequal and all that. And, and their argument in the Remain referendum, Osborne and Cameron, was essentially things are pretty good, vote for that. Um, Johnson's argument is different. Johnson's argument is actually we do have an inequality problem. I mean, Theresa May started it in a sense, um, but, but she marked the change. We do have an inequality problem, and I, I'm the one to solve it. And so, and I think that's a really interesting sort of, um, not just challenge for progressives, but it's important to understand where Johnson, um, who is pretty shape-shifting, where Johnson estimates the zeitgeist to be and the, and the mood to be. And so, so, so both of those things together, the objective sort of circumstances we see, and then secondly, um, where our opponents are makes me think that you've got to have big answers to these questions. Because I think people... You know, I think about my own constituents who voted significantly for Brexit. You know, the biggest single thing for them was to say, and this is what I would, ha would have in conversations, is I want a new beginning. I want something better. There must be something better. And it's our job to, to answer that. Um, and that's in a way, that's where I think, I think social democracy needs to be. And the last thing I'd say is this, which is, you know, Thinking about this in a bigger meta picture, I think 1979 to 2008 represented one settlement. It was Thatcher's settlement, significantly modified by New Labour, but it was a sort of, it was an era. Now, it's almost like we're in, it was, it's almost like we're in sort of extra time of the 2008 settlement. Um, and I think you've got different parties seeking out what does the new settlement look like. And I sort of think what excites me about politics um, is that's the challenge. That's the challenge we've got to answer. And I actually think that's what the next election will end up being about, is who's got the better answers. I, I feel quite optimistic about that because I think, I think, I think these are answers that the centre-left can provide better than the, better than the right. The way conservatism has gone has created space for the centre left to go big, go 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 bigger in essence. Um, yeah, and we've and we've and and you know and you know when we've got to because because those are the challenges that we face. Ed, um, we've covered so much ground in this conversation, and thank you so much um, for taking time to talk to us, sharing the wisdom and hope that can be found in uh, in go big. Um, for those of you watching, uh, I, I do encourage you to get hold of a copy um, of Ed's book and details of, of how to do that will be here in the, the sidebar uh, chat and on the RSA uh, event social media. Um, stay tuned to the RSA's channel for more events uh, like these. You can hit subscribe um, here on YouTube to stay updated. You can also check out our recently launched Regenerative Futures programme and the Leading Edge Thinking, Innovation, Resources Available on the Regenerative Futures web pages on the RSA site. And all that's left for me is to say um, thank you once again to um, Ed Miliband and thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.